Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, the go-to podcast for pediatric cardiac critical care. My name is Sadie Rodriguez, and I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Hi, my name is Deanna Zanatos, and I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist at Norton Children's Hospital in the University of Louisville. So the episode that we are bringing to you is really inspired by the 2021 PCICS virtual meeting on a panel that was discussing stem cell therapies and tissue engineering by two incredible surgeons and pioneers in their field. And I'm gonna let them introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Sanjay Koshal, Chief of Pediatric Cardiac Surgery here at Lurie Children's. And I'm Yolanda Klan. I'm a professor in cardiac surgery uh, at the Amsterdam University Medical Center in the Netherlands. Thank you both so much for joining us. Our audience is quite varied with a wide spectrum all the way from trainees to advanced practitioners and also varied in very clinically heavy facing to very research heavy facing. And as I was preparing to talk to you both today, I had to do a lot of reading. So maybe we can just start off with a basic overview of the many different stem cells and progenitor cells that are used in this research field. In the space of regenerative medicine for congenital heart disease, there's multiple stem cell types that can be used. The main action of what we want to do, in particular to trying to regenerate or remodel the heart, is try to rejuvenate the heart. Uh, We're not trying to regenerate the heart in any way. We try to use the word remodeling. We think that that the action of the stem cells is to remodel the myocardium uh, in order to for example, perform better, improve their um, ejection fraction, improve their diastolic dysfunction. So the concept is is that it's remodeling and not regenerative. The field of stem cells has has always thought that stem cells has that magic uh, potion uh, where they can create new cardiomyocytes, new uh, myocardial mass in order to improve the function of the heart. And I think that's a myth. It's been borne out with multiple studies in humans, clinical trials in adults specifically, where they've shown that the stem cells does not really regenerate the the heart in the sense of increasing uh, myocardial mass, increasing cardiomyocytes. However, what it does show you from the adult trials is that there's remodeling that's occurring in the myocardium. So the action of these stem cells is remodeling. The second question you have, and then I'll pass it on, is that you're asking the question, what stem cells are out there? Well, there's a variety of stem cells that are out there. There are cells that are called induced pluripotential cells, embryonic stem cells. Those are the most proliferative stem cells in the sense they generate cardiomyocytes. Then there's other stem cells like derived from the bone marrow, called bone marrow-derived mesenchymal stem cells, for example, derived from the bone marrow. Lastly, there's other stem cells that can be derived from the organ that you're trying to regenerate. And so in one of our clinical trials, uh, we used discarded right atrial appendage in order to isolate stem cells within the heart themselves. So there's a variety of stem cells that can be used. In addition to that, It can be used in a method of either autologous, meaning from the same baby, you put them back in, or allogeneic, meaning that they come from another human being and can be uh, administered to another patient. That's when the stem cells are privileged, they don't stir up an immune response, and so that's a clear differentiator for one of the phenotypes of stem cells. 
So to summarize, multiple stem cell types, their mode of action is remodeling, and lastly, they can be an autologous or allogeneic prep of the stem cells. Yeah, thank you very much for this introduction. And my research actually does not focus on using stem cells because, as said, there are really some problems with working with stem cells, especially when you think of making an entire new heart with stem cells. I think uh, that we are far away from that uh, stage. And for that, we change to yeah, a different kind of research line. And that is that we use... Uh, soft robotic techniques for the beating, for the muscle power of the heart. And we use uh, tissue engineering for the inner lining. And also with inner tissue engineering, we use that also for heart valve tissue engineering. Uh, we also went away from using stem cells or cells from the patient, but we moved to the field of what we call in-situ tissue engineering. And in that way, we implant a valve or a heart with an inner lining made of biodegradable synthetic scaffold that attracts cells from the patient, the baby, the child, the adult patient, and then the cells stay there in the scaffold and in the end also degrade the scaffold. This is great. This is such fascinating work that you're both doing. Since Dr. Koshal has a little bit of a time crunch, I was going to start with him. If you don't mind, just share a little bit about the work that you have been involved in specifically surrounding patients with single ventricle physiology and hypoplastic left heart syndrome and the injection of these stem cells after their stage two or stage three surgery and what the results that you have seen and kind of where that research began and where you see it going. Thank you very much for that question. We've been pretty much on a quest for the last, uh, I would say, a decade now, trying to understand whether we can use stem cell therapy in order to remodel the heart in single ventricle patients. One of the limiting clinical issues with single ventricle patients is that their heart tires out. For example, in hypoplastic left heart patients, the right ventricle becomes uh, dysfunctional. We want to even argue that it becomes dysfunctional the day that you do the Norwood operation. The day that you do that first operation, you have stimulated and have instigated a, a pressure and volume overload to that right ventricle. That right ventricle does respond well at the beginning, of course. Those patients do well. But I want to argue that, that what happens over time, and it happens in a very different course in different patients, right? The response occurs differently. And we think that there's a maladaptive response that occurs to that right ventricle. What does that mean? Adaptive response means that when you do have that pressure or volume overload, you preserve your right ventricle function. You preserve your RV mass. Well, that really rarely happens in hypoplastic left heart. When you look at the right ventricle in a typical hypoplastic left heart, their function could be preserved, but their RV mass is huge, right? They become enlarged. It's hypertrophy that's occurring in that RV. Of course, we think that that's the first setup of dysfunction that's occurring in that right ventricle. Then the question is, if that is true, can we actually mitigate the right ventricular hypertrophy? That's the concept that we think is very critical 
in order to create a more adaptive response to the right ventricle. So we started this concept and we tested it first in, uh, in preclinical studies using pigs, where we banded the right ventricle, the pulmonary artery, and we stimulated right ventricular dysfunction. And what we noticed very quickly is that when you give stem cell therapy to that right ventricle, it recovers itself and it prevents the increase in hypertrophy to the right ventricle. So the RV mass does not change. In fact, we were really surprised. In fact, there's no hypertrophy occurring with stem cell therapy in those little piglets. At the molecular level, we noticed that there was a halt there was a remodeling occurring in the right ventricle through a molecular pathway that we discovered called the GDF15 pathway, which has also been shown in other conditions in the left ventricle, but not in the right ventricle. So we think that it's through the GDF15 pathway that prevents hypertrophy. So now fast forward, we went ahead with a clinical study looking at that particular question. And in hypopastic left heart patients, as we think that that is the most difficult, most challenging patient population, and also can get the best, hopefully the best outcomes with stem cell therapy. And so we decided to embark on a phase one, phase two study, where we look at the time of the Glenn operation. We inject stem cells into the right ventricle and ask the question, first, is it safe and feasible, you know, very good endpoints for the phase one study. And then second is to go ahead and try to understand whether they work. And that's going to be the phase two study. So we have currently two stem cell trials going on. The first is uh, using allogeneic mesenchymal stem cells derived from the bone marrow. So these are derived from a young donor from the bone marrow. And we inject those cells during the Glenn operation in eight different sites of the right ventricle. We have a second trial called the CHILD trial, where we obtain a piece of the tissue of the heart, time of the Norwood, we grow up those cells, and then we inject them also at the time of the Glen. So we have two parallel clinical trials going on. I'm happy to report uh, the phase one results of both of those stem cell trials uh, reached their endpoints of safety and feasibility. So we're very excited that we didn't have any, any major side effects and we reached our our endpoints. And now we have moved those into a phase two study, which we're actively enrolling. Uh, we're hoping to complete the enrollment probably in Q2 or Q3 of next year. So it's really um, moving quite fast and at a quick pace. The design of the study is that we wanted to look at under a microscope that right ventricle and we decided to, to use MRI. And I think that is the gold standard. It's hard to get little babies under the MRI scanner, but we feel the power of this study is because of that. And so we have a baseline MRI, and then six months later after stem cell therapy or after their Glenn operation, and then one year. That gives us a longitudinal study of this right ventricle. This is probably the first study that really has that microscope of really looking at that right ventricle very closely. We already know because we're doing echoes as a standard of care, we know that echo misses too much. It's just a cursory look at the right ventricle at most. And so we know that the MRI is going to give us those results. And, um, and we're very excited about that trial. What also came out of the phase one studies is the following. We're trying to understand 
the pathways that works for uh, these stem cells. How do these work? We postulated something, right, from the preclinical studies, but do we have any glimpse of those happening in the little babies? The answer is yes. What we did was that uh, when you inject the stem cells in the heart in these little babies, the cells set up shop in the heart, but what they can also do is that they can start secreting exosomes. Exosomes are microvesicles. These are very small 200 micron little vesicles that they secrete. Within the cargo of those exosomes contain microRNAs and small proteins. Those are very key transcriptional profiling cascades that they set up within the heart to remodel itself. So then we asked, okay, so if they're, they're secreting those exosomes in the heart, can you actually detect them in the, in the serum? We did preclinical studies and said, oh my God, we can see them in the serum. So then the question is that, can we do that in humans? And can that give us an indication how the cells are working in the heart? Because those exosomes are a mirror image of the mother cell that they came from. The answer is yes. We were really surprised in our little babies. We were able to detect the exosomes that were specific to the stem cells that were injected in the heart. This is very exciting because when you interrogate those uh, exosomes, you have those microRNAs, and now you can understand how those cells are changing the landscape of the right ventricle when they're transplanted into the heart. And so we've interrogated those um, exosomes. We have discovered pathways that are important for that processes, and that is in the, the phase one results. Just to give you a glimpse of what we're seeing, we think this through GDF15 pathway. So very similar to the pathway that we discovered in our preclinical studies, we've now uncovered something that is really fascinating to me is how these cells are working in humans. We're very excited about this, as you can see. We think that, that stem cells are, can remodel the heart in single ventricle patients. We're hoping to uncover the mechanisms, first in humans and first in babies, that are able to discover how these stem cells are working. And this will be very key to how we use these cells in the future for patients with not only single ventricle patients, but also in, in congenital heart disease at a global level. So a lot of the data that I just uh, shared with you is probably about five to seven years of work. And in the last few minutes, I just summarized a lot of that. That is so fascinating. And for those of us who take care of these patients, it just gives so much hope because it feels like there's only so many things we can do with surgical technique and bypass technique and medical management. There's been lots of improvements over the last many years, but to really change the outlook for some of these patients and this therapy really seems to, to do that. I'm curious, do you see this as more of a preventative therapy or as a treatment? Are you seeing regression of the RV hypertrophy or is this more um, we get in there early enough to make the change. Yeah, I, I think we need to inject those cells at the time of the Norwood. I think it needs to be preventative, but I think that we will only get that intervention when we understand how they work. And we have to understand that in a more stable population, which I think is the Glen or the Fontan. 
Yeah. I wanted to ask you also in speaking about furthering our understanding of how they work, and you were speaking earlier to the paracrine mechanism of action with the secreted exosomes. What are your thoughts on either utility or efficacy of using the stem cells themselves versus the cultured medium that have all of the mRNA over a longitudinal period? Or could there be some other um, opportunity to use the medium? Good question. That's my R01. Um, um, we have a busy molecular lab that complements our clinical uh, studies. And so the question is, is that can you understand a functional unit of those cells that is the mode of action of, of the cells and you actually use that? And the answer is yes. We have determined that the exosomes uh, we feel is the functional unit of stem cells. We think it more broadly that it's probably the secretome uh, that contains exosomes in independently secreted proteins. And so we have captured that. Uh, we know how to make that in big bulks of conditioned media that contains the exosomes and we can concentrate it. And now we think along the lines, it is a drug. And so you can give it at multiple doses. We have now verified you can give it IV intravenously and it works as well as the cells themselves in various preclinical studies. So we've stumbled on something here, and I think that we um, we can start to get excited because of the clinical application can be tremendous. So if you have that failing Fontan, one of those uh, treatments when they do come into the unit, unfortunately, is this new uh, therapy. Of course, we have to continue to determine its efficacy and its feasibility and safety issues, but we're already thinking along the lines that we can use the exosomes themselves. That's incredible. Fills you with hope for the future of regenerative medicine and, and really leveraging antioxidant, antifibrotic effects and, and perhaps other patient um, contexts. I want to be respectful of your time. Thank you so much for allowing me to speak today and share our experiences and we think exciting work. As Dr. Koshel joins us from Lori Children's Hospital of Chicago, we wanted to take a moment to recognize them as an official PCICS sponsor. Lori Children's Heart Center is one of the top-ranking pediatric heart centers in the nation for pediatric cardiology and heart surgery. They perform more than 450 heart surgeries each year, with one of the best survival rates for congenital heart surgery among the nation's 40 largest and most advanced children's hospitals. Additionally, Lori Children's Heart Center provides high-quality specialty programs, such as their fetal cardiology program, Single Ventricle Center of Excellence, NICU Cardiac Neurodevelopmental Program, the Regenstein Cardiac Care Unit, and a leading heart transplant program. So in shifting gears a little bit, Dr. Kloon, help me understand exactly what do you mean by soft robotics? And in the concept of kind of tissue engineering, I was reading something about how you had seen a soft robotic octopus and that helped inspire you. And I was just fascinated by that. I, I was wondering if you could help me understand a little bit about what is soft robotics. Yes, yeah, thank you for the question. Yeah, so to, to start off, I think it's important uh, to realize that we are really far away from building a heart from cells. Hopefully, uh, I really hope we will get there one day, of course, but that will take uh, a lot more time. Knowing that and knowing how difficult it is to make just one heart valve out of the patient's own cells, I thought we should combine techniques. We cannot 
only focus on cells for building a heart that that takes very long if we at all will hopefully <laughs> we will get there so then yeah so a soft robot is essentially something that's made of soft materials and when you inflate it uh, that can be by air but can or you can also use fluid so a liquid when we take air and you have something that is made of soft materials and you put air into that by the specific arrangement of materials, so one side is, for example, softer than the other side, then it will bend. And by the way you form with your materials, so the materials essential in this, your structure, it can be in an octopus or in our case a heart, then it will have the movement or the functionality of what you want. So it can, for example, walk when you have octopus-like thing or in a heart it can beat. So the, the beating power, really the strength of the heart does not come from any cells in our hybrid heart research project, but it really comes from soft robots. But that means that you still need something to put the air or the liquid inside. So it's not something in what we all have as our holy grail is that you have, when you make a heart out of cells, you don't need anything. It beats from itself. Of course, cells need sugar and so on to beat energy, but not energy from outside. For the hybrid heart, you still need some energy from outside. But with the techniques we are using, we hope that we can, in the end, only need a very small pump that pumps not the blood, but the liquid or the air, and then the heart beats. So it's essential that you use only soft materials, so no rigid ones like we know from a normal robot. If we think what is a robot, it's usually something made not of soft materials, but those soft robots are made of mostly silicons, but when you think of making a heart out of silicons and it has to beat uh, millions of times, I think from a durability perspective, silicon is not the right material. So we focus now on non-elastic materials. And the nice thing about the hybrid heart is that we combine it with tissue engineering techniques. So everything that is in contact with blood, so the inner lining is made by these biodegradable materials. So that's hopefully in the end, the inner side of the hybrid heart is made from the patient's own cells. Because that, of course, is the problem after a heart transplant that you need to take medicines to uh, prevent rejection. rejection. Yes, with this, that the patient don't need to take any medication that prevents rejection and that the patient also don't has to take any anticoagulation or maybe only aspirin or something. But... We, because we don't use rigid materials like we have in, in LVADs and in, in total artificial hearts. So that's one thing. We don't use this rigid material in the bloodstream. And the other thing is the way the blood is squeezed, sort of. So there's no not a rotary pump in the bloodstream or there's no hard materials, but it's soft. And the way it pumps sort of mimics the way the native heart pumps. And in that combination, so the patient owns cells in the inner lining, the soft movement and the soft materials, hopefully that combination 
will solve the problem with thromboembolic uh, complications. Th- those are yeah, the main problems with LVETs and total artificial hearts at the moment. Such an incredible project, the hybrid heart, with so many different intersections and disciplines that have had to come together to be creative and collaborate their expertise. If you could give us a quick overview introduction of of all the collaborators and and different fields that have had to come together to work on this project. Yeah, yeah, thank you for for this really important question. And that is what I like, especially about the research I'm doing. So the collaboration with people outside the medical field. So you really need a University of Technology. Uh, And in our case, we closely work together with the University of Technology in Eindhoven in the Netherlands as well, especially on the part of the inner lining. So they make those uh, biodegradable synthetic materials. They use electro spinning to make this inner lining. So it needs to be very porous so that cells from the bloodstream can enter uh, really the scaffold. Uh, so, for example, Gore-Tex or other things we use on a daily basis in, in cardiac surgery, those are non-porous materials, so cells cannot enter. And these biodegradable scaffold needs to be very porous, so we use electrospinning for that. And then you end up with something like a candy floss-like uh, material where the cells can enter. And then, of course, you need people that are really experts in soft robotics. And those, uh, in our case, are from AMOV, that is an institute in the Netherlands, and in PISA in Italy. So we work on a, in a European project. So we cannot have partners from the US there, unfortunately. So we have to have European partners. But in PISA, there's a really a large uh, soft robotic institute and in AMOV as well. So those are um, yeah, really uh, very intelligent uh, engineers and people who help us with that part. But it's fascinating to see that they look at it more from a theoretical view. So they like to know how do those materials fold. And they do not have really an application in mind. And that is fascinating uh, to be yeah between the patient who needs something and those people who can make fascinating things without knowing what to do with it. And uh, so I really like that part of my uh, research as well. Yeah. And then, yeah, you need something, someone who knows a lot from pumps and energy delivery, because the third aspect of the hybrid heart is that we want it to be actuated by transcutaneous energy delivery. So, meaning that you got rid of the drive line that all patients now with an LVET or a total artificial heart do have. The smaller babies, it's really outside the body, but in the larger children and in adults, you have this drive line. And especially for the quality of life, uh, the drive line, knowing that you cannot go for a swim or take a shower or have a bath, uh, we hope to get rid of that as well so that the energy transdelivery is via the, the skin. So you have to put on a jacket or something Uh, And you hopefully with the newer generation batteries, you can also put off the jacket and then your heart runs for, I don't know, an hour, hopefully later on for a day or something without having anything. But yeah, that is something we (laughs) we work on and that will, of course, take a lot of time. And, And it's not really the focus of our work because outside the medical field, there are a lot of companies 
with a lot more money that focus on new battery technologies because of all our iPhones and electrical cars and so on. So hopefully we can step on that train um, of new battery technology. Wow. And you have used this tissue engineering work also on heart valves, correct? Correct. Can you tell yeah. us a little bit about your experience with that? Yeah. So we started, I think, some 15 years ago now with heart valve tissue engineering, also together with Eindhoven University. And by that time, we used the classical way of tissue engineering, meaning that you start with, again, a biodegradable synthetic scaffold, and then you harvest cells from the patient, in our case, a sheep, uh, from a cephalous vein from the leg. You isolate the cells, you expand them in the lab and you culture them, you seed them on that scaffold. And then you put the scaffold that is in a form of tree leaflet heart valve, you put it in a bioreactor and then you put pressure on it and you stimulate the cells to make their own matrix, especially collagen. And then in six to eight weeks, the cells have made that much collagen that it is strong enough to withstand at least right-sided pressure, so the pressures on the pulmonary circulation. And then we implant the heart valve. But what we saw is that the cells that were very much activated in the lab to produce as much collagen in short time as they can, they did not stop with that. So after implantation, they went on producing collagen so what we saw is that the leaflets became thicker and also these cells were a little bit of a contractile phenotype as well. So those were vascular cells. So the leaflet got thickened and retracted. So what we ended up with was with regurgitation of the valves. So then we switched and also you have a, a huge problem with regulations and safety issues when you use cells in the lab for six to eight weeks you can have can get an infection. You have to make sure that the cells are from the same uh, phenotype, that they do not change in in any other cells and so on. So that's also a difficult pathway when you think of the translation to the clinic. So then we switch to what we call in situ tissue engineering. And in that way, you implant a valve that is made of biodegradable synthetic scaffolds but that is not biodegradable in only six or eight weeks, but that will take much longer. And there are no cells on it, though we can make the scaffold bioactive, meaning that we can add growth factors or any other things to it. And then the idea is that we attract cells from the bloodstream, that they stay there in the leaflet, that they there slowly produce collagen, and other matrix that they need. And then also these cells start to degrade uh, the scaffold. So in the end, you end up then with a valve that is made of cells from the patient themselves. Yeah. And we started this research now some seven years ago, I think. Most of the research we did on the pulmonary side, so on the right-sided um, circulation. And we got really some nice results. We did studies with long follow-up, one year in a sheep, and also another model of patients with tegiology of fallow. So we used a sort of monocusp valve in the right ventricular outflow tract. Those had two years follow-up. And that seemed more difficult because the leaflet was quite large and it was a monocusp uh, valve. But in the pulmonary circulation, we got really nice results. 
And there are companies uh, working now on the translation to the clinic. And there are some experiments done already, mainly with patches. So we are looking very much forward to the results of those. We have not heard of any major problems. So we heard already about safety. So that seems fine. And hopefully they will have a good function for a longer time, but we have to await the results. And we recently finished a study in again in sheep, but then in the aortic position. And we are analyzing now the results. We know that it withstands left-sided pressure for up to one year. That was the follow-up in this uh, study. So we have to look into detail now to the histology and see how the valve looks. But uh, the functionality was quite good after one year. So. That's incredible. Congratulations. Yeah. yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think um I'm just thinking back on our discussions about using the matrix of the stem cells to be able to deliver or I don't know if bioreactor is the right word, but how you were mentioning the scaffold could either be totally acellular or you could infuse it with growth factors and things. Would there be a role for after let's say you put this in the patient's body it slowly I guess in grafting, or I don't know what the right term is, um, populating with the patient's cells, could there be a role for serial administration of some of these protein medias to augment the function or the durability of the scaffold's process? Yeah, so it it differs a bit if you want to make a heart valve or that you uh, want to make an inner lining in the hybrid heart. Because of this inner lining, we hope actually that the best thing would be that we only have sort of a mono layer of cells you only need endothelium to prevent blood clotting to prevent rejection but we don't want an inner lining that continues to grow and becomes thicker and thicker so there's little functionality in there so we only need endothelium when on the other hand, you want to make a heart valve, and in the end, the scaffold has degraded. There needs to be collagen. There needs, of course, to be endothelial lining, but you need much more and different kind of cells. So that is more difficult. Uh, what we hope is that we don't need any medication or so to give to the patient, but that we can incorporate that in the scaffold and that it stays there for a shorter or a longer period of time. It depends on on what you want, but that we don't need any medication because when you work with growth factors or so, um, they are not only working on the heart valve. You get other problems as well, Uh, but we hope when we have them only in the scaffold in the heart valve that, that their working mechanism is only there and not have any other um, disadvantages in the other sides of the body. Yeah. So we really hope with different materials or different scaffold to achieve what we want to achieve, whether it be a, a heart or a valve. So tell us, where are you now in the preclinical phases of your hybrid heart work? Yes. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. So we, until now, we did uh, mock loop tests so all in vitro tests thus far and you start them with one ventricle now we have uh, really two ventricles already and we have a muck loop circulation well that's a science on its own it's very difficult to really make something that resembles the human body uh, also when you think of left and right balance when you 
know how a native heart function, how, how it adapts to differences in afterload, in preload, it, it's incredible. And to mimic that in a mock loop, it's really difficult. What we now have achieved is that we have something that resembles more or less the human body and that we have a heart now that can make uh, physiological pressures on the left side and on the right side for hours and there's no failure of the heart. So that is how far we are. I recently did an experiment in an animal to just to try to suture it in. The animal was used for another experiment, so it, it was already dead, but it's important to see if there are any difficulties and that went okay. So now we planned, but I'm not sure if we will uh, make it to have the first implantation in an animal in May this year. Uh, that animal is not allowed to wake up after surgeries. Of course, I have to put it on the heart-lung machine. It's like a procedure like in a heart transplantation. But yeah, it's exactly the same. And then I put in the hybrid heart and then uh, we hope that uh, the animal can stay alive on the hybrid heart for maybe one hour or two hours. And then, uh, yeah, we measure, of course, all kind of things. So that will be, if we succeed on that, that will be a major achievement, a major step. And uh, yeah, let's hope it will work out. But if not, I know you learn such an incredible things for doing just one such an experiment because you can try to mimic it in the lab as good as you can. But the human or the animal body is a totally different ball game. So it's really important to do that once and see what happens. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. This is fascinating. Yes. Yeah, it is. Thanks. Yeah. It really is incredible. I mean, to have people that are like, as you were mentioning, taking care of the patients, you're an incredible surgeon, but then a dreamer and a visionary and, you know, just really gathering all these other expertise to make the future a little bit yeah. closer. Yeah. <laughs> it's so and it's also for patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension. Those with end stage are most of the times a little not pediatric anymore. So I don't know if, if there's a lot of experience on the pediatric ICU, but typically those are young adults and there's nothing for them. So they the, the right side of the heart fails. Uh, they don't, uh, they cannot get a heart transplant because the donor right side of the heart will fail immediately. So the only cure they have is a heart-lung transplantation. But I don't know how it is in the US, but in the Netherlands, we do only one every two years with not very good results. So uh, for also for them, so not only for patients with end-stage heart failure, but also for patients with end-stage pulmonary hypertension the hybrid heart might be a solution because we can make the right side of the hybrid heart as strong as the left side or even stronger if we want. So in that, uh, also for them, hopefully we can add something. Yeah. Even just being able to think outside the box now that I don't want to say you can manipulate physiology and anatomy, but in a way you can um, customize it to your needs in ways that we never thought possible. So yeah. You know, I think it's some looking at things from a different perspective and seeing how can science and technology work for the patient instead of the patient always presenting us with such limitations to our problem solving yeah. capabilities. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's incredible. Yeah. Is there anything that you haven't mentioned that we haven't asked you about that you want to make sure to include in the podcast? Not necessarily on the research I'm doing, but just for everyone. I like it the way you said it about thinking out of the box. 
it can come from anyone who has seen something on the ICU or in a patient who thinks, or and then the day after reading a newspaper, that was in my case, I saw that picture of a soft robotic octopus. And then I thought, well, if they can make something, it why can't we make a soft heart out of that? So, and maybe you think, well, it, it, no, that's a crazy idea, but those ideas can really be fantastic. So if you have something like that, try to to find someone else to talk about it, to ask someone just to to listen to you. And then, it, yeah, I think that's important. And also with so people from outside the medical field, it's very interesting to... Yeah, to have chats with them, they look at it really from a different kind of view. I think in that way, one to one adds up to three. And it's really important for everyone. If you have ideas or thoughts, please share it. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure also to being involved in in the meeting. Uh, It was uh, great to have the talk and, and hear the questions. It was a really pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for being a part of us. This is offline. Dr. Clue and I love how passionate (laughs) you are. You are such an inspiration. Oh my God. A woman of science and like vision. It's International Women's Month. So um, I just feel so honored to be able to talk to someone like you who is truly making such an amazing difference and as a a fellow woman, it's so nice to see you taking space in this world. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Congenital cardiac surgery and research. Yeah. So I really hope that also you and I can help the women in the field. And when I just uh, read in the newspaper yesterday that little girls in Afghanistan were crying that they cannot go to school anymore. And then my heart breaks, really. I know. And so... Well, Imagine what they could do. Yes. If they yes. had the opportunity. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, you're you're out there fighting the good fight, representing for the <laughs> for the women of the world. So yeah. thank you so yeah. much for doing okay. that. Thank you very much. It has been a great pleasure. Thank um, you. Thank you again, Doctors Kloon and Kushal, for being on our podcast today and speaking with us about stem cell therapies and tissue engineering. We enjoyed having you on our podcast. To all our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please visit our website, PCICS.org, where you can find more information about how to become a member and enjoy updated info on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. The song, I Don't Know by Grace, was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 distribution license.